0: The following podcast may contain coarse language, descriptions of violence and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Yosko Senov. I'm a former correctional officer who has worked in maximum security jails in Ontario, Canada. You see, although I really enjoyed and thrived in my career, I came across serious racism, corruption and human rights violations that were perpetuated not by the inmates, but by my own law enforcement colleagues who had been sworn to protect and serve others. I had a tough choice to make. Stay in silence and conform, or stand up and speak out. I spoke out and have been blowing the whistle on racism and human rights issues. Over the years, I've been contacted by many first responders telling me that I am not alone and that they too experience these same issues while working in their roles. I'm now on a quest to share these powerful stories with the public in an effort to inform the public on what is really going on in our government and how it affects us as a society. You will hear from law enforcement officers, government managers, social justice advocates, and members of the public who are tired of keeping their experiences of injustice, racism, and corruption behind closed doors. This will be raw, this will be real, this will be educational, and this will inspire others to come forward, speak their truth, and begin to heal their trauma. Let's get right into it. Hello, everybody. I am so glad to have you on here. This is Duty to Report a podcast that sheds light on issues going on in the government and allows government staff, both past and present, first responders, correctional officers, managers, and other law enforcement staff, as well as members of the public and advocates, to come on this podcast and share their experiences of dealing with things such as racism from inside, bullying and harassment, including sexual harassment, corruption of all levels, reprisals, and mental health trauma that they have dealt with in their own workplace, as well as what has happened when they reported it how difficult that was, and how their workplace has actually treated them along the way. Now, my goal is to firstly provide people with a platform to share their untold stories, things they have been bottling up for far too long. I want to give them the chance to come forward and get that off their chest. These are things that the public really needs and ought to be able to hear. And secondly, I'm really looking to create awareness around issues that the public is not aware of at all. Public awareness and sharing of stories that need to be heard are the main reason why I'm putting this all together. Now, many people in the public have no idea about any of these things, how it affects them as a taxpayer, as a common citizen, and I'm looking to educate them because you as a listener have a right to know that this is going on. And on this podcast, you get to hear it directly from frontline staff who are bravely coming forward to stand up and speak up and share their personal experience. I'm going to be connecting our community to these government insider stories, and we will together be sharing stories, experiences, opinions, and discussing ways to actually address these issues. Now, that's what all this is about. So before I begin my interviews that will be very fascinating ones with some incredible guests, I thought I would give you some context as to who I am as a person, who I am as a sole host and producer of this podcast, and how I got to this point. Over a series of different episodes, I'm going to provide you with the background of my full story, and you will get a full picture of what has happened to me and what is happening to many other frontline staff across this province as we speak, and likely what is happening around the country right now. My podcast will not hold back it's going to be real and it's going to be raw. And I promise you, it's something that you definitely want to listen to all the way through. So let's begin. Okay, so my name is Yosko Senov. I'm a visible minority. I'm a Roma person mixed with various backgrounds, including Turkish and Southeast Asian and European roots. I grew up in Bulgaria, which is an Eastern European country close to the border of Turkey. I came here when I was only seven years old. My family and I moved here to be able to give us better opportunities And one of the main reasons was really to escape discrimination and marginalization of minority people. And one of those minority groups who were often discriminated in my home country is the one group that I belong to. So my family worked really hard. They taught me a lot of great values in terms of integrity, dedication to my employer, giving back to my community and working very hard. Very Eastern European type of mentality for sure and really good values. Now despite all that, I'm going to be real with you here. The truth is that my childhood was not easy at all. It was very, very difficult. In fact, I grew up in domestic violence situations and had horrible experiences that really stripped away my childhood innocence and forced me to grow up very quickly. And it forced me to become emotionally mature and very sensitive and empathetic to the needs of others. It was really because the police were around so often at home and because of all of the trauma that came from those experiences and interacting with the police, the correction system, the courts, that I actually began to have an interest in law enforcement to begin with. See, I knew what it was like as a child and as a youth to be alone in those situations, to feel unprotected. And I wanted to make sure that other children and other families don't have to experience what I have experienced. That's really the catalyst of what actually attracted me to this whole field in the first place. And it's kind of ironic because those interactions with the police and my family were always negative, but I could see myself using that platform one day to make a difference for another child's life To know what to say, to know how to comfort people appropriately, to be there on their worst days, to know how to refer them to the appropriate service, and to protect and serve them. That's what protect and serve has always meant for me personally. Of course, the other adrenaline type of stuff attracted me too to some extent. But the being there and jumping in to help someone in need, especially emotionally, especially families, is what really attracted me the most to law enforcement. And that came from my own childhood trauma in a sense of wanting to be better than the cops that I personally interacted with, wanting to make a bigger impact on other youth and other children. For me, it was never about the badge, the glory, the gun, the status, or the pay. It was quite literally just to protect and serve others, especially those most vulnerable in our society. That's been my mindset all these years, and that is still my mindset. That actually fuels me. In many ways, I'm someone who gets motivated by taking negative situations and then turning him into something positive that doesn't just help me, but helps everyone else as well. And I always try to think of everybody else. Now, going through school, I'm not going to bore you and go through all my details, but I'll just say that I was a typical kid with typical issues for a kid who went through violence at home. I did really well at sports. I excelled in that arena, but I really didn't try in school. I really didn't believe in myself. I didn't focus well at all. But In reality, how can you? When you have police officers over one night and then you're going to school in the morning, it really affects you as a kid. And in so many ways, it just kills your self-worth and self-esteem. I did a really good job at hiding it though. And I was able to distract myself and keep myself off the streets and stay away from bad things by just playing sports. The only thing that I really had ambition for was really going into law enforcement. That's pretty much the only career that I ever really thought of. I got to the point where I decided to go into that field not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, because it is very broad when you say law enforcement. It was between policing, probation, parole, or corrections for me. All I knew is that I wanted to serve the public, but the term public servant is something that I knew I wanted to be, and I knew that I would take great pride in being. To get into law enforcement, it's not easy. It's not as simple as, oh, you get in great shape, and then you do a test. It's very, very competitive, regardless of where you apply, regardless of you know your your race or your ethnicity, and people think that certain things work for you and against you. But it's difficult all around in general. Oftentimes, thousands and thousands of applicants apply, and only a handful get in. So, knowing this, here's what I did. I wanted to be a very well-rounded applicant, and I wanted to have more than just a degree or just the education before I applied. So, I first got a university degree in criminology and legal studies from the University of Waterloo. I volunteered ten thousand hours of community service. And I won and was nominated for an award from my city's mayor for outstanding leadership with youth. I worked in fields that were relevant to law enforcement, things that I knew that I'd be interacting with one day, and things that would give you good background and good knowledge. So I worked in the mental health treatment facilities, school system. I worked with special needs youth. I worked in various group homes, youth in conflict with the law, and shelters and security roles. I even volunteered at my Government of Ontario's probation parole office as a volunteer probation officer for two years straight, just to get the experience and learn the job. And I really enjoyed doing the probation officer work, but there was no contracts at the time. There was a whole bunch of freezes and things like that. After all that, I actually applied to both policing and corrections. So I had interviews and corrections. I went in very well prepared. They were really impressed with me. I spoke multiple languages. I had a degree, had a ton of life experience, awards, and I actually went in with 40 reference letters. I got hired on corrections, and this was at the end of 2013 that I got hired in. Only about 200 people got hired on that year out of over 21,000 who had applied for the whole province, just to give you an idea. And that 200 people is actually a huge number because that was a mass hiring that year as there had been a hiring freeze for over four years prior to that. By the government. So they were really backed up because a lot of people had retired and they really, really badly needed staff. Now in 2013, I applied at the end of the year. 2014 I got in and I began my training at the Ontario Police College. That's where the correctional officer training assessment program, which we refer to as CODA, it's about two months long. Um, it's significantly shorter now, but that's where it was held. We had to share our space with other police officers who were doing their regular police training. Now I get in and I'm just ecstatic. Here I was, achieving my goals of getting into law enforcement and working for the government. One of the reasons why I wanted to work in corrections is because I had heard that the philosophy of rehabilitation of offenders was going to change. The government had stated that they would be opening new maximum security facilities that were structured in a way to rehabilitate offenders. And that really excited me as I knew that I wanted to work in a rehabilitation type of role with offenders. Another thing that people may not know is that OPP corrections and probation parole in Ontario are all under the same ministry or division within the government. So if you get into one, it's a lot easier to move around and get into another and try different things. So you can apply to OPP, you can apply to corrections, and you can apply to probation and parole, just a little bit easier. So that that's also exciting, of course, because then if you want to move around or try something new, you have that opportunity to do so. So, But I was truly excited to begin my career and work at the institution. I want to do an amazing job there and get the life experience and then see where it goes. Now, let me tell you about my experiences at the Corrections Training Program, or CODA, as we refer to it. I was in incredible physical and psychological shape going in. I did my pre-medical interviews, and I was very, very fit. My instructors who assessed me, and I have this in front of me here, listed me on my paperwork as above the rest of my class in the educational component and physical component. I did very well at the college. I even won an award called the Inclusion Scholarship Award in my class. It was based on something I wrote. It was a human rights award from the government. And I wrote, about, I wrote about the fact that going into this career in corrections as a correctional officer, I vowed to always uphold justice and call out racism, discrimination, or any issues that affect my workplace. Even if it doesn't directly affect me, but somebody else is being abused, I'm going to call it out. I vowed in this written piece to never change who I was and to do what I needed to do in order to promote an inclusive and safe workplace for all. I literally wrote that and I committed to that as I was going in. So I can't even begin to tell you how happy I was starting my career. Putting on my uniform at the time, it was a baby blue uniform with the dark pants. And then later on, it became that dark blue kind of uniform that almost resembles the OPP one. Having that badge on me as well and feeling what that badge represented and signified for me personally, that meant a lot. But being a public servant meant so much more. I wouldn't have that job if it wasn't for taxpayers. And I always kept myself humble and reminding myself, public servants Literally serve the public. So I don't know why people forget that and get caught up as soon as they get a government job and thinking that they're better than other people when we literally wouldn't even have the career, the pay, the benefits that come with it if it wasn't for taxpayers. So I always reminded myself all the time carry yourself with integrity at and out of work. Now, when I moved to Windsor, I didn't even have a place to live. The first little while I stayed in a hotel room just to make it work. And then get to work because I was one of the only applicants that had to move from a different region. I used to live in Kitchener and then I moved to Windsor. Now, Corrections hires you and moves you to wherever they need you. They don't really work with you based on where you live. It's based on their needs at the time. They hire you and then they can move you anywhere in the province. It's whatever jail is offered to you. So I had no choice but to move to Windsor. For those listening in who may not know, that's on the Canadian border. It's a border city and it borders with the city of Detroit. So I went in very positive attitude, my head down, working hard, picking up any shifts that were offered to me by my management, by sergeants, and just wanting to learn and do a good job and fit in, of course, and, and you know, just have make a good impression, of course, and work hard. And I had a lot of respect for my fellow graduates and other colleagues that I made friends with. I went in just wanting to get along, fit in, promote positivity, and really just keep people safe. Now, in my training class of about 45 staff who graduated... I was one of only two visible minority staff who got hired on. I say this for a reason, and I'm going to dive into this a little bit more later in another podcast, of course, but it's just to give you context. There was a black officer and literally myself, and that was about it, and one female officer. The rest were all white males going to Windsor jail. So it's never easy when you're the only woman or one or only two visible minorities in a very male-dominant culture, predominantly white male-dominant work subculture. You sometimes must work very hard to fit in, and sometimes you're just not accepted no matter what. It's just not as easy in those situations at times, and I am someone who believes in hiring people based on merit above all else, personally, but there has to be a balance there, and diversity and inclusion are more than you know just words that the government uses for PR statements. It's something that truly does matter, especially when you're dealing with all black offender units, for instance. You want to have different cultures and life experiences interacting with those offenders and being able to relate to offenders. It's key to everything else and ultimately that's what's going to help rehabilitate someone. Okay, so a couple of interesting things I can point out about my experience before I really begin sharing the meat and potatoes of the story here. The first thing I want to point out is that the Windsor Jail was a very, very old jail, almost 100 years old. It was extremely overcrowded. I'm talking like jam-packed with offenders way overcrowded and beyond the limits. There was men and women, and it carried a very hardened reputation for a very small jail. It was known to be a tough facility in terms of the type of offender population you have and the things that actually go on. A lot of drugs, fights, weapons, and the works. At the time I started working at this jail, there was plans for it to shut down several months later, and all the staff and offenders were were going to be transported to a brand new state-of-the-art modern jail. So I was really only working at the Windsor Jail for a couple of months before I would be working at this new facility called the Southwest Detention Center. Now, the Windsor Jail was one of the last jails to have a hanging. For those who may not know, the death penalty was actually legal a long time ago in Canada, and the jail was one of the last to execute someone. I used to work right on the floor and walk over and under the gallows and where they hung people. That part is obviously creepy for sure. The jail property also had some inmates that were buried on property. A typical question you get, and um, I just want to address this on here, is what was the jail? Was it maximum security, minimum security, that type of thing? People seem to be very confused about that. Yes, all of our Ontario jails in Ontario, everything is maximum security. The other question that people typically want to know is the difference between provincial jails and federal prison. So, every offender, every single one, has to go through provincial jail first before going to federal. That's something that a lot of people don't know, or maybe they don't just understand. You have to be sentenced first, and then later, depending on your sentence time, you get to go off to federal prison. The lengthier time to serve you have, then you go to federal prison for that, and then you're transported. The time you served in provincial jail is actually counted in your favor as time served, and then you serve out the rest of the time that you would. Oh, based on your sentence. There's a formula that's done. But the point is that every offender, regardless of crimes, goes through a provincial jail. That's where they're housed. So in a provincial jail, you'll actually have a little bit of everything from murder to rape to kidnap to you name it, to even somebody who's just there for a couple days, maybe even over the weekend only. Some of those people with shorter sentences will then serve out the rest of their time in a provincial jail, while others with significant time end up going to federal prison to serve out the rest of their sentence. That's how that works. Now, I can break that down a lot more just for those that are interested in a later podcast. I will also have an email inbox where people can email questions or topics and their feedback or their stories that they want covered by me and my guests on here as well. I really want to be able to answer your questions the best I can. Now, one thing I also want to mention, and this relates to the CODA training, I'm just going to go back to corrections training for a second is the fact that it absolutely did not do a good job of preparing you for what you're actually going to be dealing with at work. Now, what do I mean by that? When it comes to physical restraints, the handcuffing, the pepper spray, the baton training, the escorts, all of this stuff that has to do with what we call defensive tactics, that training was fine. And I felt personally somewhat adequate for what would actually happen at work and how to take care of myself. The majority of our training focused on that. It was a huge component of defensive tactics that we focused on throughout that two months that we were there. Now, what the training completely failed on is training officers on how to appropriately deal with real challenging workplace subculture type of situations, workplace issue situations. So for instance, there are so many mental health disorders that offenders have in jails, a lot of mental illness, and there was barely any training, completely inadequate training on dealing with, responding to, Appropriately referring and helping deal with mental health offenders and challenging situations. And when you're looking at death in custody, many, many of those situations are with individuals who are schizophrenic, individuals who have severe mental health illness that are off their medication, officers failing to deal with them adequately, or management failing to put them in the right spaces, the right places. It's all of that that's combined, but it begins with the training at this college, at the program completely fails officers in knowing how to recognize things, knowing what the disorders are, knowing how to deal with that, and completely lacked on on that in comparison to the amount of mental health offenders that you're actually dealing with. And the biggest failure of all was the fact that CODA never adequately trained officers on human rights. Now, sure, there were a couple quick slides and a random guest speaker that talked for maybe a couple minutes, But that does absolutely nothing for the insane things that officers like myself and many others would encounter once they go in behind those walls. If you look at Corrections Ontario, Ontario jails in general, they're absolutely flooded with human rights issues and human rights abuses towards offenders and human rights abuses and violations that are staff on staff related. All you got to do is a quick Google search and you will find a ton of issues. The only thing that we got taught about is the WDHP policy. That's the only thing that we ever heard in corrections, which stands for workplace discrimination and harassment policy, where you can basically call in to an investigator, supposed to be a third party investigator, but it's not because they work for the government of Ontario and you report a workplace harassment issue to an investigator and then all they do is bring it back to your management and advise them that you reported it. They basically document it for you and that's literally it. Now that's the truth. And anybody who's been through a WDHP and my guests who will come on here and talk about it will tell you the same thing. If anything, as most officers talk about WDHPs, they pretty much refer to them as career enders for you. So what that means is that if you put in a WDHP against another staff member, you get branded a certain way. Almost as untrustworthy, a troublemaker, uh, somebody who you know, goes behind other people's backs or a rat. Even if you're a victim of serious violations like sexual harassment, things like that and you file a WDHP, that's how you looked at. Furthermore, the system in actually investigating and holding people accountable through WDHP is completely broken. Now, how do I know that? From my own experiences. But on top of that, I actually had a discussion with the Deputy Minister last year, not too long ago, and I'm going to play some of that audio in future podcasts for you so you can hear it yourself as evidence, where she stated that the system itself, the WDHP system, is a complete and total failure. And also, a recent study came out on this system, and that study was also published by CBC News several months ago that also showed that the system in WDHP is completely broken. This is the only system in terms of addressing personal issues that have occurred to you, or the only system where you can report wrongdoing in the workplace. And even that, by the the government's own admission and the admission of the third-party investigation, it's an abysmal failure. Yet here we are in Corrections College, told... That our human rights are protected and the human rights of offenders and everybody else are protected. And if we or anybody else are victims of this abuse and we see or hear anything, then we are to report it. And we're supposed to be using WDHP to do so. So we're supposed to use a broken system to report it. In fact, Corrections College went so far as to tell us that we have an actual duty to report these workplace issues. Even if it was someone else who was involved and targeted, but we were simply just made aware of the issue, we could actually be held responsible. And in the corrections college, they said that we could even be fired if we did not report it. Apparently, this is what we were actually taught. This is what the training and the testing had on it. And we were not even encouraged, but actually ordered to report it through WDHP, a broken system. Now, I'm going to give you a real example of just how unprepared we were and how failed we were by our government management before we even began our actual duties working as correctional officers within this maximum security facility. Now here's the thing, the Windsor Jail had widely been known to have human rights-based violations that had occurred inside it for a long, long time. So long before I even got there, there were staff who had claimed racism and discrimination in the workplace. And I don't just mean claim, but we're able to actually prove it. There was investigations done. People were off on sick leaves, things of that sort. Now, racism, the term gets thrown around a lot, a lot, especially nowadays. And some people, you know, they make any and everything sound like racism when in fact it's not, right? There's a lot of differences between racism and other issues. When I say actual racism, I mean quite literally. Staff and managers were calling other staff's unborn daughters the N-word calling offenders the N-word, segregating black offenders in all black units and calling them jungle ranges and monkeys, mistreating them, calling them jigaboos, mocking their visitors, the actual offenders' visitors, and some officers even brought in white supremacist materials. And officers who had partners who were black in general were targeted. It didn't just stop at the offenders, you see. So how crazy... That this would go on in law enforcement, right? In this sector of the justice system, in the government of Ontario, where we're supposed to correct people through corrections. And in this day and age, targeting offenders and even targeting your own colleagues and racially abusing them. Now, I'm going to provide all the evidence that you need to hear in this future podcast. I will read the reports. And on top of that, you will also hear from staff themselves directly on this podcast that experience these things a little later as lots and lots of things have come out ever since I spoke out about this in the media and shared my experiences. Now, here's the problem. Although the government knew that this was the issue, they knew that this jail had racism and human rights abuses in it. As they currently had staff off on sick leaves for this actual reason and had other visible minority staff complaining about these same issues over the years, at no point at the Corrections College was any of this disclosed. Now, you would think that instructors would at least mention this, especially to other officers of color like myself and the other black officer that I went to the Corrections College with, and say, here's what happened in terms of racism and discrimination to other minorities. We don't accept this, nor want this to continue. We don't condone this. Now, if you deal with this, here's what you do. And here's how you appropriately report it. So not only was there no adequate system in reporting these issues to begin with in corrections, but to top it off, I and other visible minorities were quite literally walking in blind into a cesspool of racism and inequality and had absolutely no idea, no warning, no knowledge, no education and no protection and no knowledge of our rights before we even got in there. If you can't even protect yourself as an officer from your own colleagues racially abusing you in your brand new career, how then as a law enforcement staff can you stand up and protect others from being racially targeted, abused or profiled by other officers? It's a huge issue and one that has been swept under the rug despite the fact that the ministry and our government was well aware. In fact, it had been an issue for a very very long time in this facility as you're going to hear in the future. You're going to hear me read about it in future podcasts. So just to give you a little bit more context about things that I'm going to be talking about in the near future here, let's talk about the makeup of the offender population at the Windsor Jail. So offender wise, there were lots of racialized offenders, not just your typical Caucasian white offender, but we actually had a lot of black offenders. There were some indigenous and Arabic offender populations as well. Now, most of the crimes that people were in there for were very serious crimes because it was a small facility and a maximum security facility. Now, it's really important for me anyway, this is what I found, as an officer to basically be able to build rapport with offenders, to show them who you are, how you conduct yourself, to set boundaries, read them appropriately, to know when people are just trying to manipulate you, respond to situations effectively and quickly, set rules, let some things go. It's really just managing people that's so important. Treating people like human beings goes a long way. And it's not an easy environment at all. I have a ton of respect for the work in general, and I always will. And the public may not understand how difficult it is, but you will get to hear lots about this job in general and this career through this podcast, and you can can make that determination for yourselves. But in my opinion, from my experience, you're not just babysitting offenders and handing out meals. It may seem that way on the outside to some people who don't know. But to be really good at this and to actually help support offenders, you really need to get good at your people skills, problem solving, command and control, de-escalation skills, observational skills, analytical, communicate well. Lots goes into it and it can be very busy, a very dangerous environment, of course, and it can be very, very challenging. You have very challenging offenders to deal with. And like I said, you're completely not prepared the way you need to be, in my opinion, to deal with the mental health components going into this field before you even get there. So my training was approximately just two months or just over two months. And the training has now even been cut to half of that. It's actually shorter and it's online training. Now, when you're responsible for 30 to 60 people's lives in a maximum security facility, and you're responsible for the safety and security of the public and the offenders, yet responsible to deal with so much, you need to be well prepared and very well trained. And from my observation and my personal experience, This is where Corrections is failing their staff and failing the public. And unless that changes, more lives are going to be lost. More human rights abuses are going to occur. More offenders will be hurt or die in custody. And even more corruption will continue to flourish. Now, they're not preparing officers on how to deal with their own staff-on-staff issues as well. This is a big thing I want to talk about. They're not preparing them on how to deal with the toxic work culture, on what happens if you see wrongdoing with a colleague. Who do you actually go to report it to? What if you report it and nothing happens? What then? What if you become targeted for doing so? None of that was ever once discussed, nor was it even a component of the training at the corrections college. That's one of the first issues that you come across when you're actually going into this job or into this career. Is trying to figure out the general climate of the facility you work in you quickly realize how important it is to try to fit in and people pressure you to cover up, to lie, to collude, to change reports, to hide things. Yet the government doesn't even have an actual system or adequate method of dealing or reporting these issues and doesn't even touch on it in training for new recruits. I have shared this information with the deputy minister herself and I'll play that recording for you as well. And I said to her that this is where the ministry is failing staff the most. You're not preparing them for the real issues, the staff on staff issues and if staff have issues among staff, then guess what? That actually trickles into everything else and affects the offenders and the public. So I'll be speaking on this in greater detail as well later on. And I'm going to explain just how it affects you, the listener. So I started working. I'm doing a great job building relationships with the offenders I'm working with. Anybody who tells you that they were nervous or intimidated by the guys in Orange, especially when they're starting their first couple weeks, they're lying. It is nerve wracking the first little while until you get the hang of it. You're going to be tested and treated a certain way as offenders size you up, trying to see what you're about, try to call you out. They try to challenge you and disobey orders. They know what they're doing. They've had a long time to actually practice that. But you don't. You're just learning the job so it can be challenging for the first little while. It takes years to become a very seasoned vet, a seasoned correctional officer, in my opinion. I'd say it takes four to five years to become very, very good at that job. But it also comes down to more than barking orders at offenders or intimidating people. That's just not how things are done you are always going to be outnumbered by offenders in a jail. So it's all about people skills and communication and learning on the go. Now, I really enjoyed the job. I loved it. It was my career. I loved the challenges. I loved the searches. I loved especially responding to different codes and different uh, issues that were going on across the jail. But I always knew that I belonged in rehab. I always wanted to teach or I wanted to help people with rehabilitation efforts one day. I just loved doing this at that time. So part of the job as a correctional officer, is also doing searches, looking for contraband, charging offenders. You could find weapons inside toilets, for example, makeshift knives, that was very common. You would search offenders, strip search people, admit people um, after the police drop them off, do patrols, work the cameras in the main station, go in the yard, you transport offenders in the vehicles, you take them to the hospital, for example, or you take them to other jails for transportations, you deal with lots of medical calls, deal with suicides and hangings, deal with fires, and you deal with overdoses. So lots of drugs, weapons, and mental health is what my experience was. One of the first craziest things I had seen, now this is not the craziest thing, but just in my first few weeks was responding to two offenders fighting. This wasn't an ordinary fight. As I was one of the first staff to respond to this, all I see is one offender punching another one in the head and they're both going at it. Except one was using a makeshift weapon, almost like brass knuckles, but they were plastic. And they put holes in the other guy's forehead. So as I'm in there, blood squirting all over my uniform and all over me. I ended up tackling one guy, restraining him and cuffing him. Everyone's seen fights, you know, but it's a whole other thing to see people actually trying to kill each other and coming so close to do so. They had ill intent and could care less about the other person's life. And if somebody wasn't in there, then somebody would die. That specific incident all occurred because of a staff error in opening the wrong cell doors. It was the first glimpse of how crazy things get. Just my first one. Now, what was also so shocking is how the offender with the holes in his head bleeding everywhere was actually acting due to just being erratic and mental illness. And even with all the medical issues, he was so quickly put into a seg cell to calm down, but very, very quickly and nonchalantly looked at later through the glass window and quickly assessed by medical staff. It was very half-assed. I remember that specifically. I can't recall if he actually went to a hospital or not. I don't believe he did. But it goes to show you as a new recruit, that's what normal looks like. Violent, dangerous, unpredictable. So in this type of field, in this career, you have to always be on edge, on guard, and ready to respond. Because you just never know what can happen any day, any time. And in Ontario jails, some staff have actually been taken hostage as well by offenders. As if the things I've just described weren't stressful enough to deal with for $24 an hour, right? The people who typically have a very difficult time in the facilities who are victims of workplace harassment, serious racism, and discrimination issues, from my experience, tend to be the vulnerable ones, those people of color, women, gay, and trans. Now, they're not only just dealing with the things that I talked about earlier, but they're dealing with actual workplace harassment and human rights violations from their own colleagues and managers, on top of everything else that they have to deal with in their job. Now, one of the things that people may not know is When you start off in corrections, unlike OPP or policing anywhere else, you don't actually get hired on as a full-time government correctional officer. You're hired on as a part-time casual, so you have no hours that are guaranteed. So for the first few years, you're just sitting there waiting by your phone, waiting for a manager to call you in for shifts. You could get zero hours, 20 hours, or 40 hours. Nothing's really guaranteed, and you might have to do that for years, and that time doesn't even count towards your pension. You're actually considered casual, so you're waiting for a chance to be rolled over into a full-time position one day. Now, I make this point as the truth is that casual staff and full-time staff get treated very differently in many different areas. And I'm going to go into this a little bit more in the future, but I wanted to make sure that people understand that distinction, that when you start, you're just casual. On call, you're not a full-time employee, not a full-time government correctional officer. And this has huge effects on many other things in the workplace, especially when people are trying to fit in or trying to report things. If you're only on call, part-time, on contract, are you really going to report any wrongdoing? Or are you going to shut your mouth, pretend you didn't see something, just to be able to fit in enough to get a full-time position? Being part-time leaves people very insecure for their future and leaves them in positions where they feel they have to do any and everything to try and fit into to appease senior officers and managers just to make a good impression and to, to be able to just get rolled over. And that's a huge issue. So I want to get into the very first time that I actually come across injustice and racism within the Windsor jail, because that's really at the heart of what I'm talking about. So I'm doing my normal duties one day. I'm going around doing a patrol. And as I come back around, I see two senior officers, both white officers. They're handing out the offenders, uh, mostly black offenders from uh, this one unit. They're handing over the food to them as they're calling them the N-word. They don't say it directly to them but they say it as they turn their back to grab some meals. But they say it loud enough and within earshot of the offenders because the offenders were only about a foot or so away. So they said it loud enough that I could even hear it and I could see that the black offender would have easily been able to hear it as well. And they were literally referring to these offenders as the N-word right in front of them so ignorantly. So although I was shocked, I was still in disbelief. And the thing is that I was so busy running around because they had us new recruits doing absolutely everything. So later that day, the other visible minority from my training class, the only other one, the black officer from my training class, comes up to me and tells me that he thinks that staff were calling him the N-word. I asked him, like, what are you talking about? He's saying he definitely heard staff talking about him using the N-word as he walked into the lunchroom. Then they stopped and stared at him. I was pretty shocked and in disbelief. Like, what? Our own staff are actually calling our own staff the N-word, not just the inmates? Like, what is going on here? And to think that this is happening in corrections, in law enforcement, in this sector of the justice system, it's something you don't really want to believe. See, it's not something that I ever wanted to believe in. And me personally, in the 20 plus years I've lived in Canada, I've never in my lifetime claimed racism issues or seen or heard people so openly doing something like this. So I didn't even want to believe it. I had a hard time processing this could even be true. So shortly after we talked again, me and the black officer We both began to talk to each other about how this is a real thing that's actually going on here. There's actually some white officers that are racially abusing black offenders. Now I say some because I'm not saying everybody was doing this. I said some. And both of us, as both a brown officer and a black officer, we felt pretty awful to be honest with you. When they're using racial slurs or abusing offenders, even if it wasn't us, they're also abusing us. We are of the same race. But to know they are actually referring to black staff that way openly while the black staff member is walking to the lunchroom. That's something that I didn't want to just believe. I didn't want to just jump on that. And the last thing I want to do is accuse someone without proof or not be sure of it myself. So I kept all this in the back of my mind. You know, it, it felt hurtful. It felt like something that, you know, definitely needs to be addressed at some point. But I kept it all in the back of my mind. I kept doing a great job and working. And I just focused on my goals and building my reference. And I knew that one day, that I want to get into the rehab department and work with offenders in programming. So I focused on that for the time being. Now I'm going to play a very short audio clip from a full-length YouTube video that I had put together a while back. Now you will hear from this very same black officer that I'm talking about, and he will be detailing this exact experience at the Windsor Jail. You will also hear other black and white officers and a manager talking about their experiences of racism and the fact that it does exist in corrections and in our Ontario jails. I will share the full audio in future podcasts as well, but here's a quick preview for you guys. I found myself in a couple of situations that I was in disbelief of. I walked by the staff room um, and clear as day, overheard somebody use the N-word. I was working reception in the front of the institution, so a very, very public area. When the person came to uh, escort him in, He pointed to the window and he goes, that fucking nigger made me wait. And that was in a public place where there was lots of people and under WGHP, they're obligated to come forward. But of all the people they interviewed, nobody would. And they knew I had a boyfriend and it wasn't until he showed up, but they realized he was black, but that's when everything kind of went sideways. The union president and other officers and a manager refer to my unborn child as a nigglet. Um, they talked about the nigglets that visit in the waiting room, visiting the black inmate. They still segregated into B range, B is for black, and they still followed that when I left. Especially those first few years, I felt like I had to prove myself every single day. That just because of the color of my skin, it doesn't mean I can't do the same job as you and deserve the same pay. A little while later, I was on the first floor in the Windsor Jail uh, doing a tour and overheard it again. A couple of offenders even approached me and said they'd been called the N-word as well. Um, and half of my offender population was biracial or a visible minority. I've witnessed other officers, you know, cause, calling inmates, it's very derogatory terms. I had to go and approach the officer and tell him that the, the inmates called the ombudsman, and I cannot hide the fact of what I've heard. And it was a racial slur. The number of uh, racial terms towards inmates um, from officers or from even from from managers. Yeah, it, it definitely exists. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no doubt that it exists in that environment. I just want to let you guys know that this is literally just the beginning. This hasn't even began to scratch the surface of what's actually gone on, what my story was my trials and tribulations, what I've learned along the way. There's going to be so much and you want to stay tuned for this because I'm going to share more and more and get into so much detail, so many facts, so much evidence, including audio recordings, different staff talking about things on here, different managers coming on and I'm going to break it all down for you as my listeners. I will do this over many podcast episodes. Now, my next podcast will be an incredible interview with a former corrections female manager and I can't wait to share with you guys. Please have a listen as we talk about our experiences of bullying and harassment that she had to go through, what happens when she reported something, how the public is paying for workplace abuse, but they just don't know it, offender death situations, mental health in the workplace and trauma, including PTSD, and how the employer fails to address it, as well as she candidly shares her story of witnessing death and the impacts that that has had on her, along with the actual impacts of sexual harassment, workplace bullying, and gender discrimination. She is an amazingly brave, articulate woman. She is the first female captain to have ever worked at the Don Jail in the Government of Ontario for corrections. The first woman ever. And she will talk about it all on here in my next episode. So, thank you so much to everyone listening. This is only a fraction of what has to be shared in my story and the many, many stories of other staff across this province. I'll be able to give other people an opportunity to come on here as well, including offenders and members of the public that want to be interviewed. So please stay tuned, subscribe, or add it to your playlist. Now, if you have any questions or topics and you want to talk about something, or if you're someone who wants to share your story anonymously or with a name, it's totally up to you. I've put together an email address specifically for the public to reach out to me, and I will do my best to answer questions, talk about the topics you want to hear about, and I will read individual experiences from the public and talk about it with my panel of staff on here. The email address to connect is duty2report, which is the name of this podcast, plus podcast. So duty to report podcast, all lowercase, all the full words at gmail.com. Please feel free to reach out on here anytime. I am so, so glad to have you guys tuning in and listening. And now I have an option for the public to connect as well. And I'm so looking forward to continuing to share my experiences. They're going to be shocking. They're going to be real. They're going to be raw going forward. And there's so much to unpack. And I cannot wait to share all of this with you guys. Thank you for tuning in everyone and God bless you <smart noise>